This is One Ogden. I'm John Miles. Mike King was the lead investigator in one of the biggest cases of polygamy and abuse in Ogden's history, the Zion Society. He's gone on to use his law enforcement experience to write books like Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult, and to produce his popular true crime show, Profiling Evil. You always been an Ogden guy? No, no, I grew up in Salt Lake City, moved in my senior year of high school. So I've been here uh, for a long time. How long were you a police officer? I uh, was a sworn police officer for 28 years, uh, then retired and supported law enforcement around the world for the next 17. And so what, uh, what police departments did you work for? I originally started out with the Pleasant View Police Department, worked there for a few months, and then was hired by the Ogden City Police Department, where I spent just about nine years. Uh, just about that time, Reed Richards, a local defense attorney, was running for a county attorney. And uh, interestingly, he and I had come across each other in the courtroom in more of an adversarial role. Reed uh, was defending a woman named Kitty Eeks who had committed a homicide, a homicide I happened to have stumbled upon one night while I was patrolling around. And uh, she confessed to me that she murdered the guy. We went over to the car, found him shot in the car and and of course took her into custody. And uh, through that trial, Reed and I became friends when he ran for county attorney. He offered uh, me an opportunity to come over as an investigator and an office administrator for him. And so I spent the next seven years with Reed at the county attorney's office. And during that time, uh, had the opportunity to work on a multi-jurisdictional task force where we were buying and selling stolen vehicles. And uh, one particular day I walked into the office and and uh, there was nobody around. So the secretary asked me to talk to a woman who was waiting to meet with an attorney or an investigator. And she ended up uh, exposing the Zion Society cult in Northern Utah. And I ended up uh, taking that case over and being the lead investigator on that case, which ultimately netted 12 arrests. We rescued 32 children in the case. There were probably in excess of 4,000 rapes of children in that particular case by the time it was all said and done. When, <clears throat> when that kind of wound down through the court system, which was an incredibly long period of several years just getting through the court process, uh, Reed had been uh, brought on to the attorney general's office as the chief deputy attorney general. And the state of Utah was just starting a brand new investigative unit called the Ritual Crime Task Force. And if you think back to the early 1990s, it was an era of the satanic panic. And so I went in and, and worked on that task force where we, over the course of a number of years, investigated about 300 plus bona fide cases of ritual abuse. That kind of changed my career path to where I spent most of my career path doing serial predation, uh, looking at serial homicide cases, serial sexual assaults, and uh, spent uh, the remainder of my career at the attorney general's office, was fortunate to be promoted up through the ranks. And and at the time I uh, was done with my career, I'd been chief of staff and and uh, 
it was time to move on to the private industry. Wow. I think it's fascinating how you can sort of trace this line in your career from this Eeks uh, case that really seems like it was this coincidental happening that you end up getting involved with that uh, over to the county attorney where this there's this other coincidental happening. Um, but it seems like each of those really, you know, leads into each other. Yeah. I mean, I, I have had this incredibly blessed career, but it's because of people like Reed Richards who along the way says, hey, I think there's something in that guy I like. And an opportunity was given. I read a little bit of, of the accounting of the, the Eeks case. But so you're kind of just driving around and then this woman comes up and confesses a crime? It, it was just in the course of normal patrol duties. I was driving around. I was in the very northeast corner of uh, Lornfar Park. And, and I saw a woman walking. She appeared distraught as I pulled up to talk to her. She said, I just killed somebody. And of course, uh, I obviously detained her and, and I called for another unit. And I said, hey, I got this uh, woman who might be a little crazy. I don't know, who said she just shot somebody and they're in a car over here. Uh, and there was a little uh, alleyway at, at the, the very east end of Lauren Far Park where a lot of people would go and park. And and uh, so one of the re other officers responded and started yelling on the radio for a medic. And, and uh, we, we realized we had a real case. Wow. Um, and then uh, when it comes to the Zion Society case, that seems very similar to where this woman's looking to talk to you and, and very quickly into talking to her, you realize that she's also confessing a crime. Well, yeah, that was a little different because she was in the office to to obviously unload uh, the burden that she was carrying about knowing what had gone on. Uh, she wanted somebody a lot smarter than me, I'm sure, because I, I just walked into the office and I think that poor receptionist at the time couldn't find anybody else. She's like, oh, what do I do? I'll, I'll take this goofus over here and have him talk to her. And uh, of course, uh, once I went in and met with the county attorney and said, here, here's what we got. You need to get somebody really good. He pointed at me and said, I got somebody really good. You're managing the case. I, I'd never done sexual assaults and, and certainly not uh, ritual sexual assault cases in my career. Mm -hmm. So I was way out of my league, but um, I was empowered knowing that the county attorney trusted my abilities and and uh, wanted me to do it. Yeah. So was, I, I imagine that was fairly notorious. In fact, you kind of mentioned in your book that people used to sort of drive by the houses and stuff. Was it fairly well known at the time? Well, the ghost stories were fairly well known. And, and that's the challenge that law enforcement faces in these kinds of cases is there were, there were two pronged problems with this case from the onset. One was that most of the allegations of something bizarre happening were coming from estranged spouses, almost always men, because it was uh, women who were recruited into the cult. Oh. It was a polygamist-style cult that actually became just so much more perverse than just polygamy. And for those who are going to get mad because I said polygamy is perverse, outside of what the law says is normal and accurate and probably what many mainstream faiths believe, mm -hmm. but so that you have this problem in that regard, but you also have an, a, a, another problem. And that is that um, there's this talk going on, there's allegations going on, but whenever police show up, cruise through the neighborhood or something else, 
there's nothing in, in the criminal code, nothing that's a violation of law. And it's really interesting because this is a principle we used to teach when we taught criminal profiling around the world was that you can have uh, criminal behavior, which is defined by a violation of statute, criminal law, but you can also have deviant behavior, which is that wacky stuff that people do that isn't quite breaching the point where it's breaking law, but it's certainly disturbing. And uh, and the sad part is you can't do anything about most of those things until they walk over the threshold and commit crime. Mm -hmm. You sort of talk about how a lot of times law enforcement doesn't just go after the crime of polygamy or plural marriage when it was not decriminalized, but you sort of have to find these other reasons to go after these people initially. Yeah, I mean, there was no question back in the 90s, it was against Utah law to be engaged in polygamy. It, it's certainly still against national statutes to be involved in that. Um, but the, the challenge was, is it was like, if you, if you really get down to the nuts and bolts, how many relationships out there are very similar where somebody's catting around and has three or four mistresses and uh, maybe legally married, maybe they're shacked up with somebody, maybe they're shacked up with two or three people. It starts falling in and getting into this really gray area where you wonder, are we persecuting because of a religious belief? Are we trying to follow a statute? And are we trying to follow a statute of consenting adults? So one of the lessons along the way that we learned in the Ritual Crime Task Force, and one of the things that I would preach on a continual basis to investigators and prosecutors that would listen, is just strip away all of the sensationalism and the voodoo involved and focus on the elements of crime. And if you can focus on the elements of crime, then make your arrest and move forward and put your charge in front of the court based on the violation of a criminal element like sexual assault of a child or abduction or rape or whatever the, the violation might be. And then if you really feel so inclined, wait till the sentencing phase to bring in all of this weird voodoo and make it an aggravating circumstance to the case, something that shows that this predator was using their position of power and trust to gain control over a child victim or an adult victim and uh, use it during that phase rather than muddying the water with uh, all these tales of voodoo. Mm. I'm guessing, though, in the course of prosecuting the Zion Society case that it became very notorious and... and uh, got a lot of coverage. Is that right? Oh, it, it was it was huge. I mean, there was national and international attention on this case. But one of the things that was so intriguing about the Zion Society case is it moved so quickly through the court system. Once we got through the preliminary hearings and these predators determined that they were going to be going to prison for a really long time, they all pled guilty. And so um, we we had this really interesting thing where a lot of information about the case was never exposed to the public because we never hit a, a court hearing. And in part, I believe that was part of our Shree's strategy to somehow minimize the impact of the global messaging that would occur in this case if it did go to trial. Oh, wow. That's interesting. 
is he still alive? No, he died in prison. Yeah, and I say that, I say he died in prison, thankfully. And so that case seems to have, like, really just changed the course of your career. Like, I'm I'm guessing that leads directly into you getting into this ritual crime task force, right? Yeah, that that was the reason. I mean, uh, I, I don't know that there was anyone else in the state that had experience with ritual crime at the level that I had at that particular time. <clears throat> I was also... Uh, teamed up with a detective who was pulled from the St. George Police Department who had some great child sexual assault and, and child sex abuse investigative experience. Uh, but but I brought to the table most of the ritual crime experience. And so you got a fair amount of national exposure even from that point. Yeah. Speaking. And, and yet, uh, true to the the fabric of law enforcement, I didn't talk to many people. I, when A Current Affair came out and did their stories, I didn't participate. Um, mm. My job was to get a case in front of a prosecutor and then support the prosecutor through the court process. And, uh, and then, of course, I took on a new role at the attorney general where I then moved on to, to other things. <clears throat> and in reality, when the last case went through the court system, I packaged everything up in a box and I stuck it on a shelf. And thankfully I kept a copy of it at my home, but, uh, and, and I walked away. I never had contact with any of the victims. I didn't feel like it was appropriate to communicate with them and be a reminder of what they had endured. I didn't follow up on, um, what was going on in the community other than knowing that we had destroyed the Zion society cult, but I did keep up on the inmates who were in prison. I continued to monitor phone calls and other kinds of things to know what their strategies were and how, like with Warren Jeffs, that Arvin Shree was continuing to run the cult from inside the prison. So, um, so you find yourself stepping away. And it wasn't until 30 years later when, when one of the cult members emailed me and said, Hey, I don't know if you remember me, but, I'm having a really hard time with memories from my childhood. And I looked at that email for a couple of weeks, John, and I just determined, uh, number one, I didn't want to relive the experience. And number two, I didn't know being out of the business that I could provide any kind of help for this person. So I sent her a note and said, I'm sorry, but I can't meet with you. And I wish you the very best. And Mm. within days of that email, I received one from another victim in the case who said almost a similar story. I'm having horrible nightmares and memories, and I need to know what's true and what isn't. And uh, as I sat and chatted through this with my wife, I thought, well, what do we do? And as uh, intervention happens often, I got a call from Reed Richards who said, hey, the Utah Victims Rights Council is wondering if you and I would do a presentation on the Zion Society and talk about the lessons learned after 30 years. Mm. I turned Reed down too and said, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to go there again. And it just kept Uh haunting and chipping away at me. And finally, I uh, reached out to these two victims and I said, "Uh, let's, let's get a few of you who would like to chat on a Zoom call. And we'll talk. And uh, and I organized a Zoom call where I brought together eight of the victims 
who are now 45 year old women. And uh, that was the first time I'd seen these kids since they were 10, 12 years old. And it was the first time that they had seen each other miraculously. Mm. They had been split apart and went on. And uh, the similarities of dysfunction in their life and challenges and other things was so remarkable. But at the end of that meeting, they said, you got to tell our story. And Mm. that's why we wrote Deceived, an investigative memoir. I was curious about that, the memories too. Um, when you're at that point writing a book 30 years later, like I know you mentioned that you had these these tapes of these long interviews you have and stuff. Are you able to review that stuff and, and kind of go back and listen to it or is it lo- locked away? Thankfully, again, I kept my all of my police reports, which back in those days, there was no um, rule about what you took home or what you didn't. So I had my own files. I had my own copies of things, which were very limited. Uh, a lot of it was on VHS tape that had degraded over time. And and uh, and when I reached out to the county attorney and asked for copies of all of the files, sadly, they notified me that they had destroyed those after the last person was off of parole and, and uh, on their own. And of mm. course, and after Arvin Shreve died, um, so then my thoughts turned to the Ogden Police Department and, and they had gone through several uh, report management system changes. So the the stuff they had was in archives, but I was able to get some of the old supplemental reports. But again, thankfully, I had all those anyway. So I started calling all the cops that were there on the day of the raid. And I started chatting with them. I started uh, interviewing the witnesses in the case and the victims in the case, uh, the adults would never talk to me. So, um, and, and I guess rightly so, because I was the guy that, you know, arrested They've been committing so. crimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Huh. And, uh, and did you see, uh, once you moved into the ritual crimes task force, did you see similar stuff to that? Like, is there, was there a lot more polygamy going on or is that not so much what's involved in ritual, uh, ritual crimes? Well, the interesting thing is polygamy is, a, is fits within that, question of ritual crime, if it is a coercive and crime committing polygamous group. And uh, in my experience has been that um, as we learned more about this, we saw that there were uh, generational polygamous groups like uh, the FLDS, where children are raised in the same system and over and again, they learn from, from infancy the um, the cult ideology, and that's a much more difficult kind of a group to infiltrate, break apart, talk wisdom to, um, get realities in front of, versus, again, that's generational, versus these convert kinds of groups, like you would see at that time with the True and Living Church in Manti that was run by Jim Harmston, who later died now, his son is the self-proclaimed prophet in that group. But those generational groups are those uh, um, convert-style groups where people get this aha moment and say, I'm going to give all my money to this cult leader and join their group, often have people who all of a sudden wake up at some point and say, wait a minute, I still have this support system at home. I have this belief system that some things are right and some things are wrong. 
and they work through and then they eventually separate from the cult and become better at informing and providing information that you can build cases against. Mm -hmm. Outside of polygamy, you still have closed societies that are organizing, small groups that are doing things. And then it gets down to even the individual that's involved in ritualism, or maybe they use uh, somebody's faith against them to compel them to do something, that they threaten mm -hmm. people with, uh, God is going to be mad at you if you ever tell anyone about this little special thing that we're doing together. <clears throat> and they use those uh, coercive kinds of mind control in order to satisfy their perversions. And so those were all lumped in with the same kind of ritualized crime that we pursued. So it, would that be kind of like the Chad, Laurie, Daybell kind Absolutely. of thing? Absolutely. Yeah, would, yeah. would, fit, would fit perfectly. And, and the, the, when you talk about the Daybell uh, cult, it was a group that started and, and the, the mechanism they used for recruiting was the end of time's belief system. Let's go out. Let's be prepared. And, and Chad was, of course, running around doing these seminars where he was saying the end of the world's coming. But thankfully, if you stick close to me, I'm the guy who happens to know what's going to happen. And, uh, and then Lori gets ramped up and sees him and meets him. And all of a sudden, he's got this cute girl who's pushing and saying, hey, I think you're the cat's meow, Chad. And uh, pretty soon he's thinking, well, I don't really need my wife. And then, like in many of these cases, whenever you got a problem, you got to get rid of like an ex-wife. And I'm not saying he killed her. Hopefully the courts will determine that. Um, he certainly has a presumption of being innocent. Uh, we know that Lori killed her kids or participated in that because she's now been convicted. But it's really weird how these closed society, self-proclaimed leaders suddenly get revelation from the God that they follow. And I hope you caught that, that I say the God they follow, because I don't believe it's the God that most of us follow. Mm -hmm. um, and that's whether you're uh, a worshiper of Islam or Judaism or Christianity. And so what was the, um, what was the catalyst for the, for profiling evil? <laughs> uh, you, you know, one night during COVID I was sitting with my kids but they said, hey, we ought to put one of your old stories on the internet and just see what happens. And uh, that goofy thing seemed to resonate with people and uh, our audience started to grow. And as a result of that audience growing, Court TV and News Nation and a few other places uh, worked out re arrangements with me to, to go on on a regular basis on their shows. And then Dr. Mm. Phil started calling and, and it just kind of grew and grew and grew. And we try to use profiling evil, not as a way to sensationalize like many of the true crime uh, socializers do. I try to just focus on the facts that have been publicly released. And then I just try to talk about the investigative process and help people find balance in the decision making. Because our emotion wants to convict everybody when we hear someone was hurt. But the mm -hmm. law may not provide that. And frankly, the facts may not support it. I, I kind of had assumed that the media stuff had maybe started before the podcast, but that's not the case. The podcast kind of leads into the rest of the media stuff. Yeah. I mean, I just went about my life doing my regular job, which again was supporting law enforcement. I spoke globally on things that had to do with 
real-time crime centers, fusion centers, intelligence centers. Um, but rarely did I talk true crime uh, mm. other than maybe anecdotally saying, here's an incident where this could have happened. And, and, and it wasn't until after that then that the channel started calling and saying, hey, we'd like you to be a commentator on our program. And my opportunities seemed to open up then. And so in that time, you've written several books, right? And, and had several TV appearances. Like it really kind of took off once you started doing it. Yeah, I, I had been writing books for a number of years. A, a former profiler who was my mentor, he and I had written a book. Uh, we did a, a show during long before Profiling Evil started, you may or may not have heard of, uh, called Who Killed King Tut on the Discovery Channel. And it ended up winning an Emmy Award, and and uh, we ended up traveling all over the world speaking about the investigative process in an ancient 18th Dynasty murder of a pharaoh, and yeah. uh, and so we we had opportunities here and there to to get out and do things. We that that book did very well. We did book signings all all over. Gosh, it was it was really an interesting experience. And as a, re as a result of that, then I ended up doing follow-up shows for the Discovery Channel. And then Arts and Entertainment reached out, and I did a couple of gigs with them. And, uh, and, and it just continued to kind of slowly grow. But the whole time, I was still working a full-time job. So I was always trying to just minimize and not have something that would negatively impact my day job. And, mm. uh, and then, of course, once COVID hit, and everybody was sitting around. It was like, why not? The books that we wrote in the early days were investigative books. Analyzing criminal behavior was one where we talked about different aspects of the of criminal behavior in regard to violent crime. Uh, we did a book called Predators, Who They Are and How to Stop Them, that was written for the lay public specifically as a way to help people understand ways in which they can reduce their own level of risk of becoming victimized. And that one did really well. Um, and mm. then, and then uh, the girls asking, and of course I was on uh, the Dr. Phil show with the girls and uh, we were just kind of talking about whether to do a book and Dr. Phil uh, put up on, on the world stage and this book's coming out soon. So, so we uh, really buckled down, and thankfully, my wife, who is truly the writer, I, I everything I write looks like a police report, John, and she <laughs> turns it into something that makes sense. Uh, and and That's she's nice. very humble and won't allow me to put her name on the cover, but her name should have been first and mine second because she actually smithed this thing together and made it so nice. And then after deceived an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. We thought it would be a good time to also share a story, uh, an investigative murder story of the murder of my great-great-grandmother in 1891. And, uh, and so I wrote a book called She Knew No Fear, and it was about her life coming from uh, the United Kingdom across in an old rickety sailing boat, walking across the plains being sent to Hole in the Rock in central southern Utah, fighting uh, wild, and I say Indians because that's what I'm told to, to say now, Native Americans, but they were wild and they were mm -hmm. fighting and they were warring against the army and she was warring with them. And, uh, and then eventually at a town celebration on the 24th of July in 1891, 
she was shot and murdered. And, uh, I heard about it all my life from my grandfather. And one day it struck me, you ought to look into this and see if you can solve it. And I'll be darned if 10 years later, uh, we didn't solve it. And, uh, if you're interested, I'll tell you how, how that really happened because it was miraculous. Yeah. I was wondering like if your criminal investigation experience played into that. Yeah. In fact, that's, I kept thinking, you know, holy cow, I spent a career investigating stuff. I look at my own relative Uh and, uh, and of course throughout history, um, I had heard different stories that, that, uh, she, uh, was murdered by, uh, an outlaw named Roach and what a great name for an outlaw. Uh, and that, uh, these same Indians that she had fought against and were fighting against the army actually went out and hunted him down and did some prairie justice once he was killed because they loved my great, great grandmother. But, uh, one day I was, uh, working for the attorney general's office. I was writing to Southern Utah, to the Four Corners area to do some training. And I had uh, Palmer DePaulis, the former mayor of Salt Lake City, in the car with me. And uh, we were driving down, and this was in the heat of this investigation into my grandmother. So I was telling him ad nauseum about this case as we're driving. And I'm sure about four hours into it, he was just wishing he could uh, jump out of the car and get away from me. But I said, hey, we got to stop in this little town of Monticello because I I have uncovered that she might have been buried in Monticello because that's where she was murdered. And so we pulled over and it was about eight o'clock in the morning. And uh, we'd been driving since four or five in the morning to get there for our meeting in time. And we walked into the Chamber of Commerce and there was this old woman sitting at the Chamber of Commerce table. And I uh, walked up and I said, excuse me, I'm looking for any information you might have on a woman named Jane Walton McKechnie, or I'm sorry, Jane McKechnie Walton. And she looked up at me and and I hope I can do this right, but with her little arthritic finger, she kind of pointed at me and she said, are you family of Miss Walton? And I said, well, yes, I am. And she said, well, I happen to have your grandfather's journal, your great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather's journal, and I've carried it my entire life. We're not wow. related, but my father said one day a family member would come needing it and that I should give it to him. Would you like this? And of course, I just you know, I fell apart. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in that journal, in my grandfather's handwriting, was the story of who killed my great-great-grandmother. So uh, that's how we were able to pull the whole thing together. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the interesting thing is um, in the, in the preface of my book, she knew no fear. I actually have, uh, and I recite this story and I have uh, Palmer DePaulis's permission to share it because he was there. In fact, he's a devout Catholic and I'm Latter-day Saint and, as we walked out, he said, if you can find a puddle of water, you can baptize me right now. <laughs> and and uh, what became so miraculous about all of this is several years later, my wife and I, in writing the book, went down and met with the historian in San Juan County, a woman named Corinne Roaring. And she had a home that was just jam-packed with everything you could imagine historic, history-wise. 
And I told her this story and she said, you're a liar. There's no old lady that's ever worked at the chamber uh, booth and it never happened. And so <laughs> I don't have an explanation for it, but I know that I have a, a former mayor of Salt Lake City who's a Catholic who says, yeah, I was there when it happened. Wow. <laughs> yeah, pretty wow, amazing. Incredible. I've noticed also on your your profiling evil site, like it's very well put together, um, and also your 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 videos, your YouTube channel, your podcast. It's all very well produced and stuff. Were those skills that you have, or did you kind of have to put together a team? And like, what kind of like what kind of resources does it take to kind of manage all of that? Yes. Yeah, so my son in law uh, has a production company, and my son has a YouTube channel selling Pokemon cards and does incredibly well selling Pokemon cards. And so they kind of gave me some guidance. And after about the first four or five months, then I just started, rather than waiting for them to edit and, and fix things, I just started figuring out how to do it myself. And over the years, I've just gotten a little better at the hacked up way in which I do things, which seems to work pretty nicely. Yeah. The other thing I noticed, I really enjoy on your website, you've got the, um, I think they're called story maps, but I was going through the Gabby Petito one and I just, they're, they're very well done. Uh, you know, really easy to follow. They look really slick and stuff. And then yes. I noticed that was like a ArcGIS product, the, the story maps. Is that right? Did that all just kind of fall together? So, um, of course, I was still working for Esri when I started Profiling Evil and I reached out to the owner of Esri who hired me and is, is a friend his name is Jack Dangerman. And I said, hey, I'd like to do this profiling evil thing. And I'd like to use some Esri software. And gratefully, he said, you can use our stuff for as long as you want to use it. And and uh, so he's given me licensing. And I try to call out Esri whenever I can, because it is incredibly powerful software that allows you to not only look at a dot on a map, but really analyze that dot against all of the other information that might be out there and uh, come up with, with better uh, kinds of uh, informative tools. The story maps are great because it gives you a way to kind of control a message while allowing the viewer to explore on their own. So if they, if they want to go out and dig a little deeper, they can just take that same map and dig a little deeper as you've, as you've found. So it's a really nice way to bring uh, multimedia sources together and have a map that just gives you this geographic reference. Because in my mind, everything just seems to make a little more sense when I can geographically envision it and uh, see where things are happening. Uh, in fact, I um, yesterday worked on a map for the uh, FLDS and Colorado City Hilldale area of some key places out there because I'm going to be driving out there in a few minutes and uh, spending the night at Warren Jeff's house. Oh, Wow. There we go. So this is a story map I started working on yesterday, and it's just about, uh, of course, uh, Warren Jeffs and the FLDS. And what I do is I go back to um, the the foundation of polygamy as far as the mainstream Latter-day Saint faith. And uh, again, these story maps are just so cool because they give you this mm -hmm. ability to to interact with the map and go in and do things and start looking around. But in here also, I've cre I've created some information with a link to the manifesto and a video about uh, them talking about the manifesto itself and uh, what's going on there. Um, mm -hmm. Go through some base content, but then I go into 
why did they settle in Short Creek? And uh, which is Hilldale and Colorado City. So here on the map again, another interactive map showing where in the world it sits. And I talk a little bit about uh, Short Creek and how it became Short Creek and then the leadership through the years. So this is the really cool part about story maps is they just give you this really nice way to interact with data, learn a little bit. And then I get down here to where I talk about the raid on Short Creek, but then I go to locations of interest that people can go in and explore. And if somebody decides, hey, I wanna go for a drive into Colorado City and look around, these are the locations where the major things are that happened in there. In fact, um, uh, tomorrow I'm gonna be meeting with the former uh, mayor's son and he and I are gonna travel around. We're gonna go to each of these locations and just talk about uh, different events that happened in in history through those areas. So I'll be covering it from a cop's perspective of what we were trying to do in trying to build cases against Warren Jeffs and other members of the sect who were sexually abusing children. And he'll be telling me what life was like on the inside knowing that the devil, the government was trying to infiltrate them. So yeah, they can get that. At, um, folks can get the, the story maps at profilingevil.com and they can explore those and kind of learn a little more. So is there anything on the horizon that you're excited? Any like upcoming releases, upcoming episodes? You know, there's a couple of big things coming down. Of course, that uh, five reasons women are more prone to watch true crime than men, I think has been a pretty successful video. But the thing that I think I'm so pleased with in that one is that I had a psychiatrist, Dr. Soham Das from London, who was on there talking about it from his perspective. I had Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic psychologist here in the States who works in the California penal system talking about it. Had this award-winning journalist who has had these incredible stories about the impact of dating sites and other things and how predators are using those. And, and, then, and then, frankly, we came up with what I think are pretty five pretty solid reasons why women are more apt to, to view. So I hope people would watch that and mm -hmm. hopefully get something out of it. Um, <clears throat> tonight, if I have good bandwidth, I'm going to go live from inside Warren Jeff's house and just talk about what's going on there. Maybe walk around a little bit. I don't know. It's, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, it's interesting because Warren Jeff's bodyguard and Warren Jeff's father, his predecessor, Rulin Jeff's bodyguard, is a man named Willie Jessup. And Willie and I uh, were mortal enemies during the time that I was a sworn police officer. A few years ago, I called Willie and I said, it's time you and I have a chat. And I didn't think he would meet with me, but he agreed to meet with me. And I went out and I said, okay, Willie, I'm going to tell you the ghost stories. And I want you to tell me honestly whether they're true or not. And we started at the baby cemetery where we believed that uh, infants were born and undocumented and uh, buried um, that uh, we believed very strongly. And, and he took me to the baby cemetery and we talked about that. We went to uh, the Isaac Cemetery where the leaders are born. And we talked about the mounds of dirt that are left rather than burying flat graves and the possibility that people were switching headstones to protect, protect the former prophets from being dug up. Uh, we went to the zoo and to the park and, and 
and uh, to Warren Jeff's office and to his home. And uh, each place, we, we ended up spending eight hours together, including the big uh, coup de grace that I really was interested in. And that was the ghost story that there were secret caves in the mountains of Hildell where the sect had hidden guns and, and explosives during those years and was a place where we would end up having to, at one point, if we ever raided, then try to get into. And mm. uh, uh, I could never find anyone in that entire community that would acknowledge that it was true. And uh, Willie said, yeah, there's probably 10 people in the last 50 years that have been inside this place. And he took me inside and he allowed wow. me to film just a short few moments inside and uh, confirmed that, yes, they had stored weapons there. They had stored explosives there. They had food storage. Inside those caves were full bathrooms with porcelain uh, fixtures uh, inside the cave. Uh, it was just incredible. And so anyway, Willie uh, invited me to come and spend the night in Warren's house and uh, have breakfast. And then I'm going to meet with this polygamist who is the former mayor's son, one of his 35 children, I might add. And, uh, and we're going to talk through things. So there's some fun things coming up. And I'm also going to have a story probably next week about a former channel member who uh, reached out to me on multiple occasions, firmly convinced that her husband was the Delphi killer uh, of Abby and Libby in Delphi, Indiana. I uh, obviously said, I don't want anything to do with this discussion, but talk to local police. Mm -hmm. And six months later, she murdered her seven-year-old son. And the police department reached out to me. I worked with them for two and a half, almost three years. And just a few days ago, she was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of her son and attempting to kill her husband, who she believed was the Delphi killer. Wow. And uh, and I'm going to share that story uh, on uh, Profiling Evil. So a couple of wild things coming up. Well, great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us for a bit. Pleasure to do so. Thank you. Yeah, great to meet you. Don't forget to go subscribe to Profiling Evil. Check out their YouTube page. Go to their website. Look at their story maps. Go buy the book Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. It really is an incredible story. So much Ogden stuff interwoven, like how the cult leader was involved in the city. Also, there's some fun stuff developing for the One Ogden Patreon supporters. The 90-minute Earthworm interview is still there. We just filmed some Patreon-exclusive content this weekend. And we're going to do weekly giveaways from our guests, including albums and books and gift cards and more. So go support us there. It's only five bucks a month, and that money gets invested right back into the show. So patreon.com slash one Ogden for that. And have a great week. <laughs>